hear some version of this phrase at the font almost every Sunday. As we stand before these waters that speak to us of a love and a grace that come to us and uphold us before we are ever able to respond ourselves. A grace that throughout our lives summons a response from those waters. Week after week, we are invited to respond to that grace by speaking the truth, not just about ourselves, but also about the world in which we live. And then receiving the grace that is always present. And then being invited to rise up as a forgiven and forgiving people. Sometimes I look out over the congregation as I say those words. And I wonder how many of you are thinking, easier said than done. Easier said than done. I know that some of you are thinking that because sometimes that's what I'm thinking as I say the words. That this forgiveness to which Jesus calls us will challenge us at some foundational levels. There's no use denying it. This is a tough parable to hear and preach. More than once this week, I've thought of scrapping it for the 23rd Psalm or something, you know, a little lighter. This is a tough parable. It has all the characteristics of some of Jesus' toughest parables. Hyperbole, a little bit of humor, just enough discomfort to tease the imagination, to make us... Maybe cock our heads to the side and slow down and ask ourselves, did I really hear what I think I just heard? To sit with it for a while. To try to discern as best we can what it means for us as a church and as individuals who take the name of Christ. It's easy to fall into a pattern of reading parables that miss their central point. The parables are always first and foremost about God, not about us. They're about God and the contours of God's kingdom, which is drawn near to us in Christ. That is the starting place of any parable, and that's why almost all of them begin with some variation of the kingdom of God may be compared to, as this parable begins. But when we run across a parable like this one, our inclination is to make it about us. And I admit, when I read this parable, I've read it many times and preached on it many times, I almost always immediately want to push back against it. I don't think Jesus would have minded that. That's one reason he, te he taught in this way, to, to evoke a response. I want to push back against it. How is it possible to forgive 
77 times. Some translations say 70 times 7. Either way, it just means every time to infinity. How's that possible? I don't ask that necessarily rhetorically. I, I wonder, how is that possible? To forgive as often as you are called upon to do so. What about people who are caught in abusive relationships? I wonder. Should they forgive 77 times their abuser? What about that friend? You know that friend. We all have that friend who repeatedly demeans you behind your back, uh, gossips about you. And then when you find out and confront him or her, they come begging forgiveness. I, I love you. I'll never do that again. How many times Peter wants to go? Seven seems about right. Generous even for that kind of behavior. Mostly I know myself well enough to know that this kind of forgiveness is incredibly difficult for me personally. C.S. Lewis wrote that forgiveness seems like a nice enough thing to most people until they have someone to forgive. When I say those words at the font about being a forgiven and forgiving people, there's a face that flashes in my mind sometimes. A woman who came into my study at the church I was serving unannounced, wearing on a hot summer Alabama day a long sleeve shirt, hiding bruises her husband had left on her upper arms. I can't take it anymore, she said. And we talked, and I suggested at the end of the conversation a safe house in that county, a, a shelter for women who were in that kind of situation. And she became quiet at this moment of decision, uh, wavering in her resolve. And as we talked more, she said, I've been talking to this friend of mine I'm in prayer group with. She says I need to forgive him as long and as often as he asks and try to stay with him that that's what our faith requires. Her experience and that of many others requires us to take great care in reading this parable. Paying attention to that bigger picture that it paints for us Sitting with it, especially in a community of care and authenticity, mutual support. When we do that faithfully, we realize that before this parable is about us, it is about God. Just what kind of God do we proclaim in this place? Peter doesn't realize that's the question he's asking. That's the question he's really asking when he asks how often he should forgive. But Jesus does realize ultimately that's a question about God. 
And Peter throws out, as you've heard already, what he thinks is a good number, a generous number. As many as seven times, the rabbis have taught, for the most part, over the centuries, that three was a good number. It was kind of the first century version of three strikes in your house. So Peter thinks seven is extremely generous. Surely seven is enough. Jesus shocks him with his answer of 77 times. That would have been a conversation stopper right there had he not immediately gone into this parable which invites Peter and all of us to think about that question from a different place. And it's ultimately the numbers that tell the tale. As soon as we hear the amount of money that slave owes to his Lord, we know something is up. A talent was approximately 130 pounds of silver was the equivalent of the daily wage of a laborer for 15 years, one talent. 10,000 talents, then, is the daily wage of a single worker for 150,000 years. Just sit with that for a moment. Jesus might as well have said he owed him a gazillion dollars. And this is a day laborer who is owing this kind of money. And when he's confronted with his debt, um, he falls to his knees and basically says, Be patient, I'm good for it. 10,000 talents. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> At this point, Jesus' hearers will be doing what some of you just did. They laugh, it's humorous. It's absurd. There's no way this servant could ever pay this extraordinary debt. And the amazing turn in the parable is when the one who has owed the money simply releases the slave and forgives the entirety of that enormous debt. And here is where the parable invites us to consider the nature of the God we worship. One writer says that we are floating on a sea of grace. You and I, a sea of grace. That is the state of things for us. God in Christ has poured out on us grace upon grace, immeasurable, incalculable, unpayable. A love beyond our imagining. 10,000 talents. This is your reality, Peter, Jesus says. This is the place in which you stand. And to us as a church, he says, this is your reality as well. Now, how will you respond? What will be the shape of your life knowing that this is how God has forgiven you? And what will be the posture of the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ? 
and worships this God whose giving knows no end. There is one way to respond. It's captured clearly in the parable. The slave who is forgiven, did you notice, he does not express gratitude for his forgiveness. He is not moved to compassion and generosity by his own forgiveness. He seems to believe that he could have, if he had been given enough time, paid back that gazillion dollars. And now that he's been forgiven the debt, why, his luck has changed. He leaves the scene of such radical grace and immediately shows by his actions that he will not extend that same mercy for a debt that was payable. A hundred denarii. He is, in fact, this slave, a prisoner to himself, though he does not seem to realize it. He is condemned to the unique torment of a life devoid of mercy, enslaved to the past, always counting up what he is owed, a ledger sheet that makes for a hellish existence. Forgiveness is finally about love and relationship. Forgiveness, it's important to say, does not dismiss wrongdoing, but in fact takes it with utmost seriousness. When someone asks you for your forgiveness, think about the last time someone asked you for your forgiveness. When someone asks you for your forgiveness, he or she is saying to you, I was wrong. What I did hurt you and damaged our relationship and I want to repair it. I want to stop living out of the past of that pain and open out a future of hope and reconciliation. Forgiveness is not a carelessness or an indifference to wrongdoing. On the contrary, there can be no forgiveness without standards and issues and values being violated, without persons and relationships being hurt, without a loss felt so deeply that efforts at restoration are being pursued. Forgiveness takes the violators the violated and the violation very seriously. To be forgiven is to be taken seriously. To deny forgiveness is to deny two things. The relationship with the person seeking forgiveness and the forgiveness we ourselves have received from God. It is to forget that we are all of us sinners and that there will come a time when we will need forgiveness as surely as we deny it to others. This is the hard truth of the parable that makes it difficult to hear. But these webs of relationships cannot be denied 
if they are not held together by a grounding in grace and mercy, the community suffers and we suffer. I do believe in the end the truth of what the pastoral theologian John Patton says. He says we cannot as human beings achieve forgiveness. We can only discover it within ourselves. And we discover it when we realize that we are more like the one who has wronged us than we are different. We share common humanity in which brokenness is real and in which we have the capacity to hurt one another and also the capacity to be agents of healing. In the parable, the unforgiving servant has the opportunity to discover this truth. But he does not. It is a posture not unlike the one Brene Brown suggests when she says that if we could find ourselves believing that everyone was doing the best they could at any given moment, we would be set free from so much of the bitterness and enslavement to the past that closes off the future of peace. Perhaps we could put ourselves into the place to make the discovery of forgiveness if we weren't so fixated on all that counting. Notice that's how the parable begins with Peter. He wanted a number. He wants to calculate forgiveness, to meet it out on a scale. He's floating on a sea of grace, yet he wants to measure it out for others in a dropper. He has not as of yet discovered forgiveness in himself. Yet Christ will walk beside him gently, persistently, as he journeys to that place of discovery just as he walks beside us. That abused woman who came to see me did finally go to the shelter I counseled. And as she walked the path in that place and with our community of faith and began to heal from her trauma, many years later, she wrote a letter to her ex-husband. In the letter, she said she knew she could never be with him again. And that was as much an act of love as anything she could do for him. But that she did forgive him. She recognized the pain in his own life that led him to do the things he did to her. And part of her own path of healing from the pain he had inflicted on her was acknowledging it and letting it go. She wished him, she said in the letter, to find the same peace she was discovering in forgiveness. It was a remarkable thing to witness the profound healing her forgiveness brought in her own life and in the life of so many people around her. And I pray in her ex-husband's life as well. It didn't happen overnight. It was not easy. 
But once she saw the depth of love and grace, the sea on which she floated, the very sea that carried her to a place where she could respond, she discovered it. And her healing began. And each time we make that recognition and response, the world is healed a bit more until we come to the likeness of Jesus Christ, the one who is for us grace upon grace. May it be so. Amen. Amen.